Welcome to those who are joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today. Today we've arrived at a story that's sometimes called Jacob's Ladder, which is actually not about a ladder, and even if it was, it didn't belong to Jacob. And now when people think of Jacob's Ladder, they often think of the ropes course challenge that dumps you on the ground if you don't climb it just right. And that's pretty much the opposite of what this story is meant to teach. So if you're going to call this story anything, forget Jacob's ladder and try Stairway to Heaven. And I realize for some of you now there's a guitar solo going on in your head. You're welcome. But this Stairway to Heaven can't be bought. It's all about God's invitation into something much bigger, into His dream for you. And if you have your Bible with you today, we're going to be centering in on Genesis 28. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles here, Genesis 28 is found on page 40 of the Quest Bible. The ushers will be coming up the aisles in a moment. Or you can always use a Bible app on your phone as well. And this moment that we're studying in Jacob's life has a lot to say about who God is and how he works in our lives too. So let's recap and look at where we are in Jacob's story. As we heard last week, Jacob is kind of a scoundrel. He tricked his brother Esau into giving up his birthright, and then he lied to his blind father Isaac to get for himself the blessing meant for his brother. But now he's got to face the consequences. Jacob got the birthright and the blessing, but winning this way cost Jacob more than he bargained for. If you were Jacob, how would you feel knowing that you took advantage of your aging father and he knew it? What would that do to your relationship? Or your brother Esau. Esau swore he was going to kill Jacob the very day their father died. Not before, of course, out of respect for dad. So whether or not Jacob had the right to inherit the property after his father's death, if he stuck around to claim it, he wouldn't live to enjoy it. Not quite the victory he'd hoped for. And it's so bad that his mother Rebecca, who told him to do this in the first place, now tells him to run but not wanting to admit that she knows why Jacob would need to suddenly leave town. She goes to her husband and tells him, Jacob needs to find a wife from among her people because she can't stand the choices that Esau made on the marriage front. Let's send Jacob away before he makes the same mistake, she says. And she chose her excuse well because Isaac isn't happy with Esau's choices either. So their public story is established. We're sending Jacob away to find a wife, not because his brother's going to kill him if we don't. But really, nobody's fooled. Isaac may be old and blind, but he can see what's going on here, that Jacob would have to go. But even after Jacob shamed him, made a fool out of him, straight up lied to him when he asked point blank, are you really Esau? Even after all that, Isaac wouldn't let lies, deceit, and humiliation be the last word between them. Instead, he calls Jacob to him one last time so he can send him off with a blessing, this time one that isn't stolen, but intentionally given. And in Genesis 28, starting at verse 3, Isaac says to his son Jacob, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. And as Pastor Steve pointed out last week, God's blessing to Abraham and Isaac included that they were to be blessed to be a blessing. And Isaac kind of skips that part, even this second time. 
But no matter what Isaac says or doesn't say, God is still faithful to his promise. Because what Isaac is doing right here is being a blessing, isn't it? See, Isaac had every right to shun Jacob for what he'd done to him. But instead, despite how he'd been wronged, he chooses to bless. Go with God, my son. It's beautiful. You see the difference that God's promise makes? Isaac, who God blessed to be a blessing, forgives and finds peace, while Esau is stewing in rage and seeking revenge. And Jacob leaves town knowing that the father he'd wronged chose to bless him anyway. In Genesis 28, 10 through 11, it continues, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And think about this. Yesterday, Jacob had everything. And today, he's alone, running for his life with a stone for a pillow and no idea what's going to happen next. Have you ever been in a place like that where you looked at your life and asked yourself, how in the world did I end up here? That stone pillow was probably a lot softer than the thoughts he was thinking. Sleep must have been a mercy. But God's mercy is so much greater. At this time in Jacob's life, when he was probably at his lowest, when he has nothing and no one, and he knows it's his own fault, when he feels most guilty, most ashamed, most unworthy, when he's made a mess out of his life and he's empty and lonely and afraid, in this moment when he could not possibly deserve it less, this is the moment God chooses to introduce himself with an unconditional promise of pure grace. Continuing on with verse 12. He, Jacob, had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, I think if I were Jacob, my first question would be, why? There are absolutely no conditions in what God says to Jacob. There's no, if you do this, you will be blessed. This is just pure promise. I promise you this, and I won't leave you until you have it. People often say that they see the Old Testament God is full of judgment and the New Testament is full of grace, but look at the grace here. And knowing Jacob's track record so far, we have to wonder, is this a good idea? Why would God make an unconditional promise of faithfulness and grace to this undeserving liar? Well, honestly, if God's promise wasn't unconditional, he might as well not make one at all. Because if human beings are involved, eventually we're going to mess it up. And a promise that you will be blessed if you do everything right is really of no use to us. Because the truth is, even when we think we're doing everything right, Sometimes we aren't. 
We don't see all that God sees. And even with the best of intentions, we can still end up making an unholy mess of things. A promise that is conditional on us getting everything right is never going to be fulfilled. The law can help us form habits and know what kind of lives God wants us to live, but it can't sustain us. And if that's all we think we've got, sooner or later, our failure is just going to drive us away from God, every single one of us. And so God approaches Jacob in this low moment to show him this promise is for him, but it's not really about him. It's about God's faithfulness. You see, God's grace is not the reward for us achieving a relationship with him. It's the other way around. It's God's grace that draws us into relationship with him. Before we could ever deserve God's love, he reached out to us. That's the only way it can work. The only way we can have a relationship with God is through his grace. So that's what God does. So what does this story have to do with you? God here is showing Jacob the faithfulness that he had promised to show his chosen people through whom he would bless the world. And that blessing was fulfilled when, through this people, Jesus was born into the world. And through his death and resurrection, he opened up for us, by his blood, that family tree of God's promise of grace for everyone who would receive it by faith. By Jesus' blood shed for us, we are adopted into that promise of his grace. And that grace, promise, and presence that God showed to Jacob, Jesus echoed even in his words when he said in Matthew 28, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And in John 14, Jesus says, I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. I will take you to be with me. Through Jesus, that promise is opened up to you. And this time, not just for life on earth, but for eternity with God. See, God's dream is to find you like he found that scoundrel Jacob and invite you into life with him. Just a side note here. Notice it's after Isaac intentionally chooses to bless Jacob that God breaks into Jacob's life with his grace. We as God's people are blessed to be a blessing. So bless with all you've got, people of God. If there's a loved one that you have been praying for, keep it up because it matters. So how does Jacob respond to this moment? Let's turn back to Genesis 28, starting at verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob's responses are so very human here. His first response is to build a monument. Whoa, this is holy ground. Put up the caution tape. And his second very human reaction to God's unconditional promise to him is to give God a conditional response. Okay, God, you want to promise me these things? Here's my counter offer. If you fill all my conditions, 
then I'll let you be my God. And third, if you do all that, God, I'll give you back 10% of what you give me. Now here's a question. Did God ask Jacob for any of that? Did God ask Jacob to set up a monument? No. Did God ask him to give a list of his conditions for accepting said promise? No. Did God ask him to give back 10%? No. That was Jacob's idea, not God's. All God did was give Jacob a promise. The only response that is implied there is to be trusting God for it. So why did Jacob react in these ways? Well, I think these were Jacob's ways of trying to respond to it in a way that made sense to him. All that God was asking was, trust me. And when Jacob responds with these things, I imagine God saying, sure, if that helps you remember you can trust me, let's do that. And I find it interesting that even though God didn't ask for these things, that after this, when dealing with Jacob's descendants, God often does ask them to do these things. Because it seems Jacob's people need action steps to help them remember and to trust. So how about you? How do you respond to God's grace? What reaction do you have to God's promises for you? I think looking at Jacob's responses can help us see what's helpful and what's not about our own reactions to God's grace. So let's unpack them a moment. So first, Jacob sets up a monument, and he calls this the house of God. So let's start with what's good about this. If a monument will help him remember what God was showing him, that God is alive and active in the world, that God made him a promise he can trust, if it helps him remember that, it's going to be a very good thing. The older I get, the more I realize that reminders are great. I love post-it notes. I love alarms on my phone. Things that help us remember that God has been and is at work are great because we need reminders. But then Jacob calls this place the house of God. And I think that was a mistake because even though he met God here, God doesn't live here. The promise God gave was, I will be with you. Not, I'm going to hang out right here. Come visit me when you want. <laughs> it might feel safer to Jacob to say, okay, God, great. You can bless me if you want, but you stay here in your house, and I'll set up this nice little rock so I can find you again when I need you. Well, that's not the promise or the point. In the second verse of the hymn, Come Thou Font of Every Blessing, there's a line that often confuses people. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And what's an Ebenezer? An Ebenezer is a rock of salvation. It was first named that after a battle in 1 Samuel 7. But it's a marker that's meant to remind people, God has brought me this far by his faithfulness to me. And when I see it, I'll remember God did something great for me right here. But the hymn goes on to the next line, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And that second line is really important because the journey doesn't end here at the marker. I don't just need to remember what God once did. I need God right now, every step of the way until I'm finally home with him in heaven. So the purpose of looking back is to remember the same God who was with you then is with you right now. 
It's human nature to put up monuments in our hearts and minds and even in our physical spaces to remember places and moments where God did something in us. So what are those monument moments for you in your walk of faith? Do those monument moments help you remember that that same God is with you here today? Because if so, raise your Ebenezer. Celebrate that God has brought you this far by faith and let those encourage you as you walk with him. Or do your monument moments function more like gravestones? Do they lock God in the past? Do they make God seem inaccessible because you can't go back to that time or place when he seemed most alive to you? Well, Jesus shows us what God does with tombs. He breaks out of them. They can't hold him. That God lives in the praises of his people right here with us, but he's also still out there seeking the broken ones in the world, using stones for pillows who never even considered calling on his name. God is at work today, and this is how the blessing of God becomes the blessing of the world through us when, as God's people, we put on our Isaac and we bless even those who don't deserve it until we see God break through by the power of his Holy Spirit. See, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, the promise is that God makes his home with us. There's a reason the Christians didn't bother to secure the site of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem after the temple fell. We didn't need it anymore. Jesus told us that wherever two or three gather in his name, that's where he is, among us. That what makes a place holy is the presence of God. And Jesus has made the way for that presence to be here with us. Jacob's first response to encountering the holy was to set up a monument. What are your monuments? Do they help or hinder your trust in his work right now? May they help you remember where God lives. Jacob's second response to God's unconditional promise is to set conditions to receive it. If you really are God, bless, bless me in these specific ways, food, clothes, and safe passage, then you can be my God. As if Jacob's response has anything to do with whether or not God actually will be God. The only thing that's going to change is how it impacts Jacob, right? If he lives knowing he has God's promise to hold him or he thinks he's on his own. If he lives in peace and joy or in fear and doubt. Now, he's free to choose the second, but the only loser in that scenario is him. But God, in his mercy, recognizes this for what it is. It's baby steps of faith. And he takes Jacob where he is. In response to God's grace and love spoken to us, we can live in trust and joy, or we can live in doubt and fear. And that's really up to you. What will you choose? Do you need to take some baby steps in trust? The third response Jacob has to offer God is a kickback of sorts. If you bless me, God, then I'll give 10% of what you give me back to you. Now, why did Jacob come up with this? Is this incentive for God to do what he already promised to do? I think maybe Jacob offered that as a response because he started to realize he had a problem with greed. It's what put him in this situation in the first place. Maybe he needed an Ebenezer to remind himself, I've come this far by God's power. Maybe he needed that marker in his finances to help him remember what really matters. But because G Jacob offered this as a response to God, 
Following this, his people are also asked to respond in faith in this way. And again, God uses it. This becomes part of how God's people become a blessing to the world. The tithes that were given at the temple were used to help feed the poor. So God uses Jacob's small response to him to create a system for blessing the world for generations to come. And that's still the case today. From what you give at church, the world around us is blessed through Project Home, Mission of Hope Haiti, the White Bear Lake Food Shelf, through the passing on of the faith. Our responses to his grace, God will use to bless. So Jacob took his first faltering steps in faith. Baby steps, but steps Trusting God in the only way a schemer like him could begin to trust with very tentative feeling things out. But just like his father and grandfather before him, he found God to be faithful. See, God met him with a dream because this is God's dream. That as is true for the angels, one day there would be no barrier between us. That God would dwell among his people and his people would live in his love forever. And we see how Jesus came to fulfill this dream right away in the first chapter of John. In John 1, page 1555, Jesus is calling his disciples, and Philip tells his friend Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathaniel answers, could anything good come from there? But when he meets Jesus, he finds that although they'd never met, Jesus already knows him. And it leads Nathanael into awe and faith to the point that he says to Jesus, you are the Son of God. And Jesus answers him in John 50, 51. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very I, truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Does that sound familiar? This is Jacob's vision with one notable change. When Nathanael will see it, how does Jesus say he'll see the angels getting from earth to heaven? Jesus said, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the connection. Jesus himself is the way. And Nathanael will see it because Jesus will be the way for him too. The way of angels will be opened up for you. Jesus is how Jacob's line brings blessing to the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of that vision that one day God's house will be with you and with me. And God is waiting for you today. Just as he was waiting for Jacob, just as Jesus was waiting for Nathaniel, he waits for you to share God's dream and to know that it's meant for you. Because Jesus is the way, by God's grace alone. He comes to you today to offer you a promise of his presence and blessing that depends only on his blood shed for you. As the hymn says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Do you know that promise is for you? How will you respond to grace like that? Do you need to raise your Ebenezer? Mark for yourself the moments where God has moved you forward so you can be encouraged to keep on seeking him? Does your Ebenezer help you remember where God lives? Are you putting conditions on your ability to receive God's promise of grace to you? Are there things you need to trust God for? 
Know that God will meet you there as you grow in trusting him. And finally, are there ways that you're feeling called to let the blessing of God's grace be felt by the world around you? How might God be calling you to be a blessing as he works his grace in your life? Let's pray. Jesus, we're in awe of the beauty of your promise, of the price that you paid to give it to us. How do we respond to a love like that? We can only pray, let that grace now, like a fetter, bind our wandering hearts to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Until the day you take my hand, Jesus, and lead me home with you, may I find my home in you right here and right now. Lord, show me how you want me to respond to your grace, how you want to use my life of blessing to be a blessing until all the world can share in your dream for us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.